All right, we're in. Welcome back. It's been a while since my last podcast, but I'm back with Solly and Zach. How are you guys doing? Hey, good to be back. Good to be <laughs> it's been a little yeah. while, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know it's been a while. Like, uh, it's really, really busy time and with all the lockdown stuff, um, just trying to keep a routine and make these podcasts quite a regular thing. But um, mm. I had a random thought last week and I actually posted the question on LinkedIn and I thought it'd be great yeah, for that. I thought it'd be great to kind of get your guys' thoughts on it. And so what I kind of posted on LinkedIn, and I got some good conversations from that and the discussion was, you know, with the evolution of how e-learning authoring tools now have got really good, um, you can create some really good learning or good-looking learning um, using these tools. Has the actual process of creating e-learning too easy? Is it now too easy for for developers? And has it made us as developers lazy or smarter and when i was thinking about this i was thinking about it purely from a kind of technical lens i mean the physical building of the content but then having the conversations on linkedin you know there was people so there was learning designs on there i was thinking you know it doesn't matter how easy the tool is to use you still need really good learning design so i just kind of wanted to get your thoughts and kind of where where you stand on that um but before we kind of dive in because i was keen to kind of Get your thoughts on what was the first ever content creation tool that you guys ever used, professionally or personally? And when was that? Well, I can I can see Zach pointing. So <laughs> I, I, I was silently pointing at you, going, "You go, you go first. I, well, I think I mentioned it in early in an earlier podcast. I don't actually know what the tool was because my role was just to build the learning on screens and just kind of say what would happen in each screen sequence and then I, I moved on to a different project so I never saw the end of that but I assume it was something really fundamental because that was 2008 so okay, it was wow it was some piece of learning that was going to be a very short module I think it was just going to be topic one click 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 topic two click, 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 and then a bit of a quiz at the end but otherwise I would say can I ask where was it hosted how was it given to the learner was it cd <laughs> was it yeah. <laughs> I, I, I genuinely don't know because I don't even think we had an LMS at the time. I don't know. Is it like a web-based thing? Like, you know, students or uh, learners go to like a web page and then they were served this content like from an intranet somewhere potentially? We didn't, we didn't even have laptops. Oh, oh. I don't think we had Wi-Fi. It was whatever those days were. <laughs> <laughs> was, oh, wow. so, something like that yeah. my neighbors had just discovered fire and you know yep. the other neighbors had just started you know using yep. um, iron <laughs> yeah and then i was building in microsoft paint yeah <laughs> yeah what about you guys uh, for me the, the first ever tool that i learned to create learning and i think yeah we did kind of touch on this in our last conversation not on there not in the podcast, um, was a director, was actually director. Yeah. And it's created by a company that some, hopefully some of the, uh, some of you listening would remember called Macromedia. And it was Macromedia Director MX was the cool latest version. And they had their own programming language called Lingo. That's right. Just to give you context, you'll be familiar with what Flash is, right? Adobe Flash. You know, when you go on a website and there's Flash content and it's all really cool. I mean, even now, some Flash is stopped being supported by Adobe, but some of the older learning content is still used or created in Flash. So, DirectTech is the predecessor of Flash. 
So it came before Flash was a thing. And we learned that at uni. And I just remember this was third year uni. We had to learn um, lingo, the programming language that um, basically you use to create stuff in, in director. That was third year. And then we graduated. The first year after graduation was when they abolished director because Adobe had bought out Macromedia. And because two of these products, both products are too similar. So Adobe chose um, Flash and basically said, okay, we're going to kill director. And then the bunch of us were going, okay, great. We've just, you know, spent a full year at uni learning how to do creative. <laughs> we haven't learned anything about Flash. Now Flash is the industry standard. So it was an interesting time. Yeah, mine was similar. So I actually started with Director and it was the reason why I didn't, I held back on using Flash for a while because I found Macromedia the easier version to build right. content in. So then by the time Adobe purchased it and then decided to get rid of it, I was like, oh, you know, I've spent all this time in Macromedia and I'm going to have to spend time in this new tool. Relearning. Yeah, and then trying to learn ActionScript. Uh, yes. Which was, which was their language. That was... Uh, Memories, eh? Do you remember Action Script, and then there was Action Script three, two, and three, right, and then there right. was a different like object oriented, <laughs> object oriented programming. It was not a fun time for any for people like us who were more sort of. I feel like we're more visual designers as opposed to coders. I mean, you wouldn't call yourself a coder, right? Like you're not big into coding. So uh, can I just maybe I was a little, back in the day I was not so much. Now. Oh yeah? yeah, yeah. Can I just say when you say we, I obviously have hit. Um, authoring tools much later in life than you two. So I personally do not know what object-oriented was the last letter, programming is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did learn coding at university, but I think it was stuff to with maths. I is it think. MATLAB? Like MATLAB? It um, was Visual Basic and Visual then Basic, C yeah. and then... That's hardcore, man. That's yeah. pretty hardcore stuff. Like, Yeah, yeah but whatever it was, we just had the assignment, it was something to do with car parking costs anyway um <laughs> i'm not from that space i'm more in the things have now evolved into a bit of a looks nicer easy to drag and drop world mm. and kind of fast forward to today so what tools do you use today and also what's been one of your favorite tools throughout your content creation journey and it doesn't have to be necessarily an authoring tool it could be you know, a photoshop or Anything like that. So, like, what tools do you use today, and what has been one of your favorite tools um, in your content creation lifetime? Sully, do you want to go first? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> again, I I use Rise and Gomo, mm -hmm. and I think I mentioned this as well in an earlier mm -hmm. podcast. One where, with the difference between Microsoft Word and this other program called LaTeX or LaTeX, I think it was. So, the reason I like Gomo is it's in the similar analogy. You can make it do whatever you want, which is, while Rise is quick and easy and there's a lot of good stuff with it at times, things that I think are quite rudimentary are just not options. Um, so they're the two, yeah, the two that I use. For me, I use Rise as well, just purely because it's the quickest tool to produce an outcome. Yeah. And a lot of what we're doing now is kind of facilitated. The particular program or of work that I'm working on at the moment, it's a bit of a blend of, of online learning and facilitated learning. It's still um, digital, but facilitated nonetheless. So for the digital component, it's mostly Rise content. Yeah. My favorite though, I'd have to throw a bit of a curveball and say it's actually Keynote. Ah, 
Okay, I'm what's that? Apple Keynote, right? <laughs> and I <laughs> Dolly just made a face. <laughs> I recoiled in a horror because when yeah. I first bought a Mac, I saw it. I did not know what it was, and I just ignored it forever. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I have to caveat this with um, when I say I really like Keynote as an authoring tool, I don't mean the latest version. They've actually killed a lot of functionality that was conducive to you using it, it as an authoring, e-learning authoring tool. A few versions back, you can export it in all sorts of different output. And, you know, the animation um, functionality was really robust, whereas it seems to have progressed in a way where it's more quick and easy now and there's more faults and less control. And as such, it basically killed off any kind of creativity that you can do with it. But yeah, Apple Keynote is Apple's version of PowerPoint, but like completely not like a copy or like like for like situation. It's a built from the ground up, imagined from, from the ground up. And so it's got a lot of really rich animation capabilities compared to PowerPoint, especially when we're talking five, six years ago or even 10 years ago, right? This is the time frame we're talking about. When ready to go, what you see is what you get. Animation softwares aren't where they are today, but people already had an appetite for animated learning content. Right. And it's that kind of weird adolescent phase of the digital learning journey. And so Apple Keynote just was the perfect tool because it gave you the ability to animate freely. It gave you put options so that you can embed it into HTML code and serve it on a web page. It gave or, or you can export it as a flash and you know just project it on its own. Or burn it on a CD-ROM, right? <laughs> give it, nice. <laughs> give it to whoever needs, right? So it was robust in how you can distribute the end result so that was you know that was the coolest thing ever and because of that and because i was also a contractor back then i always would carry and bring my own laptop because you know i had a separate mac laptop that i use exclusively for my contracting because when you go into a contract they never give you a mac they always give you a pc and pcs don't run you know apple software so I'd always rock up and one of the things I'd always ask in the interview is, and by the way, are you okay if I brought my own laptop? Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I use all the same tools you do today. Like I'm, I'm a big fan of, of GoMo. I just like how the content looks on the screen. I have another curveball in terms of what probably what one of my favorite orphan tools were. And mm-hmm. did you ever hear of Lectora? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I used to love Lectora because I just felt it was a perfect blend of kind of logic programming and visuals and it was a tool that you could kind of bend to your will if someone had an idea you could kind of just figure out a way to build it and i think it was probably one of the first tools where it had two different views so you could create content in desktop mode and then you could also change its view and create the same scorn file in a mobile a mobile phone as well yeah so that when they were on a different device the content would just change and at the time, yeah. that was quite revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like today where most platforms are built with multi, what is it, responsive design yeah. in mind. Yeah. Back then, we're talking again six, seven years ago when Lectora was one of the industry standards, right? I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, that was when most of the authoring tools still didn't think of mobile devices when they were creating their platforming tool. Yeah. I felt it just didn't break. It never seemed to break. It seems like a really robust bit of software. It's a Toyota. It's the Toyota <laughs> of the of the authoring uh, world, which, authoring tool which is world. A, which is a good thing when it's late at night and you're just trying to plow through and get something done. You don't want 
sudden errors that don't make yeah. any sense or just, you know, some variables gone missing and you don't know where I had that. You spent like, three hours just trying to get that one thing fixed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you just, what happened the other night? I Were don't, you on I, GOMO or? I was. I half deleted something. But I, and I couldn't work out. I couldn't remember where I had. So I couldn't work out. So I had to go through everything. It's like, what is linking to this variable? Yeah. And just tell me where it is and I'll fix it. So, But I had to manage it. And articulates exactly the same. Articulate storyline, I mean, specifically, yeah. is exactly the same when you're trying to dig through all the variable links, right? We've been there before too, right? Like just going, oh my God, I know it's just one thing that hasn't linked up, but the whole thing's kind of going like zombie-like. And usually it's something really sim- like simple, like one yeah. the variables are in the wrong order or something like that. Yeah. Based on that, right? It almost makes you wonder, is it the platform in its journey to make coding easier actually in turn has made debugging harder? Because if you're looking at a page of code, right? It's easy to just go, okay, where did I logically go wrong that caused this? Whereas because everything's now in a user interface and there's everything's got a GUI on it, that mm-hmm. you've got to click through all the different windows, find the pane that has all of your uh, variables and then see where the dotted line, do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. has it actually gone too far and then actually become a hindrance to um, us solving problems compared to if we were just coding yeah, somehow by hand? It's interesting, right? Because they probably build these tools that way so that they can't break so, yeah so it's interesting yeah but i suppose because everything is more visual now it's probably harder to identify where things fall over exactly yeah yeah so question mm-hmm. just looking at the how these e-learning courses or these e- these orphan tools have evolved one of my questions was does this now mean that all learning kind of looks the same now when you look at a piece of learning that's all kind of looked the same. In my early e-learning development career, I used to love the fact that if I had to build or develop an image for a course, I knew that that image wasn't going to be anywhere else in any other e-learning authoring tool. And it meant that it was really specific to that piece of learning. Whereas now you've got tools that, you know, they partner with content libraries and all these other icons and stuff. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, I can just look at a course within, and within two seconds know what's been built in where all the contents from yeah like is that how you find things as well yeah i mean we're both already nodding right <laughs> yeah yeah it's that story of like okay we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of the lowest common denominator situation happen now um rise courses don't get me wrong i love rise courses and they have served their purpose and then some right but they do look very very similar mm. And you'll always have a school of people that come out and go, well, it's not how it looks that matters is what matters at the end of the day is whether the learning has has gone through, whether the learning was effective. And you can arguably say, yeah, it actually is very effective, despite it looking very similar to the next one and the next 10 that come out of the same designer or the same team. But yeah, I definitely think it's becoming very, very um, homogenous. Yeah. Yeah. And I think from what I've seen, especially with some of those more publicly available shared examples from different people, it's a balance because on the one hand, you want things to look and feel similar, sort of like when you get in a car, you kind of want things to kind of all be in the same place and go, okay, it's different, whatever, but I know how to drive this car. So that in terms of driving it, you want that to be the same, not that every single program has got the button, the main button somewhere else or whatever. But then you still, I think, want a bit of excitement. 
And I use the word excitement specifically, not the word engagement, because everyone always asks, and we want it to be engaging. And I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> so you do want a bit of an ex- excitement around, I don't want to be confused about how to use this, but I do want to be excited to click on these. And I, I remember, Dan, there was an example of it that you built when we worked together. And it was something really simple around just the, the click next button. Um, you'd converted that to a little icon that was related to the content. Mm. And I think it made a big difference because it, you still knew the button's going to be roughly there. I'm going to still click it, but it just looked at the theme a little bit more. And it just helped you kind of go, well, this is what I'm experiencing in this journey through the learning. So I think think things like that, that are a little bit of digital dazzle, that's great because people are going to be excited and want to, do, to click through the learning. But there are other ones where it can be a bit over the top. And I've seen those ones as well where it's just a, a, a shiny – it makes me think of – it's going to sound awful – the chemist warehouse advertising. <laughs> like it's just big and loud and then hear the huge button and it's going to make noises and you click on it. It's like, okay, now you've gone too far and I'm just annoyed. It is very different. But now I'm annoyed. <laughs> just disclaimer, I have nothing against Chemist Warehouse or Chemist Warehouse learning teams. Just, you know, in case in the future we cross paths. <laughs> Agreed. I see so yeah, a good, good disclaimer. And I, uh, I do love my cheap prices. Oh, yeah. Every day. Every day. <laughs> but in terms of something that you look at as a visual, like there's the JD yeah. Hi-Fi approach, but then there's the Chemist Warehouse. Anyway. Yeah. So I think yeah, it's a bit of the usability and the look. Yeah, just to build on what you've said there, Sully, I really liked what you said before about, you know, not wanting everything to look the same, but also don't want it to be completely out of the left field that you don't know how to navigate it, right? Like when you were mentioning that, the image that came to or the analogy rather that came to my mind is, you know, you sometimes walk through these newly developed housing estates, right? Maybe by, you know, like a, a common builder or something, and they build 10 or 100 of the same houses. And you walk in there and you go, yeah, it's new and it's nice and it's just neat, but it doesn't excite you. So you don't want that, right? Which I feel like is a little bit of what the Rise content have become these days. Everything's got a very good base standard, but then there's not a lot of variation, right? But then Contrary to that, you don't want to walk into a house where it's like, oh, you know, this is a 1980s architectural marvel. And you walk in there and go, I don't even know what's a wall and uh, what's a wall, what's a door and what's a closet, right? Uh, And you you know what I'm talking about because in the 80s, they built a lot of that kind of experimental kind of architecture. So that's no good either. But you want there to be like walking down a street and then you've got houses that are all different to each other. Then none of them are cookie cutter houses, but all of them at least having a base stand, uh, standard or level of integrity and niceness, if you will. So, yeah, that was kind of the analogy that I thought of. And, Solly, I was, mm. I was interested to know if it's probably your learning design skills have changed because these tools are a lot easier to use. Has that aided the way you approach learning design? I think it has has definitely aided some of the digital learning design because I'm more familiar with what's possible and then also more familiar with what is workable. So something might be possible, but it's going to take, you know, a million screens in a million years and a million dollars to build this thing out. So finding ways to make that possible, I think that's definitely helped. In other instances, I think some of my potential stubbornness not to simply provide information mm-hmm. <laughs> has not been changed. So, so for example, I'm building a course right now and the person providing the content 
has provided a lot of content and and as a result of that on a different project i made a recommendation to someone that okay if you're going to provide it as you know a word document that's fine but it's got to be a set of words per page and you can't make the text size small and i think i chose 12 or something or other and if you go over a page you need to break that idea up some so things like that where go i'm just i'm not going to reproduce a thousand words on an online course that's just not going to be helpful for anyone so let's break it up into three or four ideas or maybe three or four modules if that's what what needs to happen and then making sure that again it's just not more words which is the new version of having a slide deck and just reading out the slide deck word for word those sorts of things i for now as much as i can i I refuse to give in (laughs) that's a good thing so that we're not producing courses that are just really long and just and all, it's also a um, maintenance issue. The fewer words you have on there, within reason, the fewer updates you need to make every time something changes. Mm. And I think that also links into the fundamental idea of what instructional design is or part of what instructional design should be. You're designing the content in a way that is easy and logical to absorb, which is different to just giving an idea in its entirety, regardless of what should come first, second, and last, and just what should be called, what should be, you know, dot pointified or whatever, and just giving the whole thing to them. Yeah, I think that's the essence of what instructional design is, shrinking it down so that you don't have to read through 600 pages, but still get the gist of what the learning should be. Yeah, so and, and all that I've learned as well, just from reading Kathy Moore's blog, around, you know, performance objectives rather than learning objectives and just let them have a go at something at the start. We don't need to have the history of the world, chapters one, two, three, and then try a case study, especially with workplace learning, you know, they're workers. So just go, what do you reckon you would do? And then use that to build out what the learning might be. Mm. Yeah. And and just going on from that, so obviously we have the tools that we have at our disposal. So Mm. in this case, maybe RISE, for example. So Mm. When you're designing and learning, do you still, with the back of your mind, have rise in your head? So when you're designing and learning, you're thinking, oh, I can actually build it like this, this, this. Or do you purely focus on the learning design first before then trying to see how it would work in the tool? Or do you kind of merge the two? Initially, I just think about the learning. But now that I have the access to the tool, I start to think about the tool earlier than I would have in the past where the outcome may have been a PowerPoint slide deck or a workbook. Mm. So at some point you start to think about, okay, what's this going to look like on a page? So the new form of that is what's it going to look like on a screen? Okay, I'm going to come out and say it. I personally find Rise really limiting mm-hmm. in a kind of an annoying kind of way. It could be any tool. Um, I'm not, I was just using mm, Rise. Oh, oh, yeah, no, I, I agree. But when I say I find it limiting is, is that if you start thinking about how it's going to look, as an end rise result, end rise course, I found this in personal experiences. I know that the customer client or the business um, area has requested it to be a rise course in the end, right? And so obviously I'd go, okay, cool. How would this look? How would this work? I find that my creativity acutely diminishes as soon as I know that I need to create a rise course purely because my brain is telling me, okay, there are these things that I can do that RISE allows me to do. And then there's all these other things that is just an impossibility when it comes to RISE. Yes, I have limited ability to be able to bend RISE 
Zizam backwards and kind of make it do things that it's not meant to do out of the box. But even that's still limiting. Yeah. So to come back to your original question, um, always try to think of even just the best vehicle or best method to convey this learning before I set on Rise. And if and when I do settle on, on using Rise as the authoring tool, a lot of the times it's because time constraint. Yeah. And another interesting question, um, for you, Zach, and it's around the kind of has it made e-learning developers lazy? Is and this actually popped up a few weeks ago when someone gave me a video to upload. It was like ten seconds long, but it was like five hundred megabytes. So, do we even need to? And with these tools, do we even need to yeah. learn things like optimization anymore, like video compressions and all of that kind of stuff? I don't know. That's a really interesting question. And also, I suppose there's many different ways of framing that question or looking at the issue that will lead you to a number of different conclusions, right? It really depends on how you want this to turn out. I mean, I can easily go, well, you know what? It's not about the tool. It's about the outcome. And if Rise allows learning designers to not have to worry about understanding how to compress videos, then why not, right? Like that's one argument, right? Because, you know, they could still get the video out to whoever they need to get it out to and they don't have to spend, you know, 35 minutes figuring out what codec to use, right? And what frame rates and byte rates. But on the other hand, I can just as easily argue because I've been through that journey of learning about codecs and learning about compression that from purist um, perspective, you can't create something new without knowing the basics. So creativity is limited unless you understand all of this really boring backend stuff. So there's argument for both sides. Yeah, I just thought thought it's quite often when I'll I'll receive a SCORM file, I'll know it's like maybe three or four screens, but then you look at the file size and it's like 700 meg. I'm like, what is in this SCORM file? And maybe like these tools make it so easy that you, you probably don't need to consider those types of things anymore. If I can add to that, while I am don't know what a codec is, but I'm vaguely aware of some of these issues because I've been told our LMS guidelines have you know limits on size and clean. I think as a framework, it's useful to know those as a healthy balance. So, for example, I don't know the ins and outs of how my smartphone works, but I do find it useful to understand a little bit of what's going on on the inside so that when it does come to, particularly with all of us working at home, for example, we don't necessarily know what people's internet connections are like, even in Australia and even in you know the edge of Sydney. I've got a couple of um, workers that I'll call every now and then on video call and it's, it doesn't always work. So I think it's good to know, have those in the back of the head knowing that these are actually variables. They're not just things that happen. And it's mm. so that you can be conscious of those when building these. So again, there's a bit of another just sense check around. So the old fashioned one might have been, okay, the workbook is 700 pages long. Do you reckon mm. that's too many pages? And go, look, yes. This is a sort of a version of that. It's like, is it going to be an issue with this? Maybe not if you're in the office and you're on the office Wi-Fi and everything's, you know, fine and dandy, but maybe not if you're you know, in the Alice Springs office, <laughs> you know, you might not be able to. Yeah, so I think those sorts of things are good to know. File yeah. size may not matter as much today, but it's good to know that we do need to kind of keep them yeah. low within reason and know still have, why. Still have an awareness at least, right? And mm-hmm. I, I think that's the crux of the issue here is because modern day authoring tools are so convenient now that 
an awareness is not required. An awareness of how video compression works is not re- no longer required. Whereas what I feel like you're saying, Solly, is it's always good to have an awareness, even if you don't actually know what a codec is or what, how to compress byte rates, right? Which I totally agree with. But yeah, I think a lot of people who are in this industry today may not have the need and hence do not know or do not have an awareness of how a lot of these fundamental things work when it comes to visual set, you know, management and video compressing, audio compressing, byte rates, even image compressing, right? Image compression, you know, they don't need to understand any of this because you just click the button, select the file, rise, pulls it in for you, and then that's it. That's the end of that little bit. Um, it's interesting yeah. though, because when you go and deploy that and someone can't access it or something doesn't load in a regional place, like <laughs> there's no one really around to understand why, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I've, I've published this school file, all of the links work, nothing's broken, but yeah. without really understanding what I'm packing, um, formats and files. Troubleshooting. Troubleshooting. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just put this one back to you then, Dan. If this happens, right, like if one of your designers designs a course, exports a SCORM file, everything's nice and dandy, you know, all the spelling's been checked and all the links work, right? That's pretty much the extent of the basic UAT testing, right? Mm-hmm. All the links work, or everything launches properly. But then Alice Springs office, you know, seven people there basically goes, all I see is a, you know, spinning wheel. Mm-hmm. What happens at that point? And this is a question to Stolly as well. Like what happens at that point? Uh, is it time to log a ticket? Because... IT departments typically don't have an awareness of what how SCORM files work either. I think generally that's what happens. It usually gets logged as a ticket and then there'll be the standard, you know, clear your cache, clear your history, mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. And then if that doesn't work, then, um, you know, then it gets probably escalated um, to yeah. the learning team. Yeah. For the areas that you've worked in, what then happens there? Yeah, I, th- I think the companies that I've worked in, it would either go via customer service or sort of the first line of defense, if you like, and it would quite possibly go up a couple of steps before they realize it's potentially something wrong with it, something that's an issue with the SCORM file, Yeah, which if you hope it doesn't need to get to that because it's been tested properly. Um, Yeah, but that's very reasonable, right? Both the examples that you both have kind of come up to with is very reasonable in terms of how that issue would then be triaged. But then if we just had a learning designer who knew about, you know, not uploading a file that's, you know, eight megabytes when it can be easily compressed, yes, using somewhat specialized software like Photoshop, be able to compress the image so that it's the same dimension, but mm-hmm. far smaller in file size, that then when this file is served, it won't encounter these problems. Then the company actually saves you know, having to, you know, have this person not be able to complete their maybe mandatory learning on time, a ticket system that could potentially be clogged up and then having people who don't really know that much about triage, uh, about learning LMS platforms, SCORM files, or even image compression, try and triage this thing and for it to eventually find its way to where it needs to get to in three days time and then having an SLA of two weeks. So optimization, right? Mm. Like if somebody just knew not to do that. Where do they learn those skills though? And that's the question. Where, where would they learn the we, skills? My brain was actually going to, how do you make that work without significantly hampering people? Like if you just went, right, no more files over this size, 
blanket rule, no exceptions, then suddenly you might run into, well, okay, well, then this whole thing is not going to work or this isn't going to work. So, yes, I think it's good. I think we should definitely explore, you know, where do you learn those skills, but also how do you set up? How do you um, enforce it or govern it, right? Yeah, you know, what sort of a this is best practice versus the system or the process will actually just reject something over this that looks like this or that meets it doesn't meet these three criteria, for example. Yeah, and then I was just going down a massive rubber hole there, but I was thinking, okay, mm. you might tell someone they need to compress a video, but then, mm. you know, how do you compress a video? What tools do you need? Exactly. It's, it's extra tools that you need to, to Is it Premiere? Oh, we don't have Premiere. Who has Premiere? Oh, yeah. the marketing team has Premiere because it's industry standard and it costs $2,000 to subscribe yeah. to, right? Yeah. <laughs> to your original question, does it make us lazy? Or, or is this, are these tools a disruptor to e-learning developers? As in having the tools is disruption? Yeah. You know, is there a need to be a hardcore e-learning developer anymore? Because we don't necessarily need to be a graphic designer, a coder, mm. a videographer. I don't know. What do you think, Solly, <laughs> to, that, to that particular I, fundament? I like to think in frameworks in a weird way. I think it's going back to what's reasonable at the time. Odd example is when I used to teach chemical engineering in a previous life, we'd do some of the maths and go, here's the equations, you know, put it in whatever. And then you'd always get people go, oh, I put it through the equation and here's my answer, I'm done. And I'd say, okay, but that final temperature I've got is more than the surface of the sun. Do you really think that's probably what's going to be happening? And they go, oh, okay, maybe my inputs are wrong or I made a wrong estimation or whatever. I think as long as people have got an idea of what's reasonable, whether it be file size or duration of the learning or, you know, things like should you have 50 one-minute modules or one 50-minute module, you know, things like what's reasonable, you know, why not have three seven-minute modules, that kind of stuff. If they've got what's reasonable and then some guidance on how to reach reasonable, and reasonable will continue to change, then I think that's potentially a solution, acknowledging that that's a very airy-fairy <laughs> theoretical approach to it. But I think that's how you get to it without necessarily the strict rules. Just go, these are some, you know, I guess using the term best practice. I feel like this is maybe where I differ, in my opinion, a little bit. I don't believe in having best practices because I don't believe the people that are creating these things should require best practices to guide them. They should be professional e-learning designers who actually know how to design these things without being guided. So best practice to me is something that you give kind of like a set of rule of thumb, right? To give to people who... This is how it won't break. Yeah. So, yeah. so kind of like, oh, you know, get somebody who isn't um, their day job to design this and then kind of go, hey, you can do it too. You're not mm -hmm. an e-learning designer, but as long as you follow the A, B, C, and D, you'll be fine. And A, B, C, and D are your best practices, right? I don't believe in that. I believe in getting the right people, so e-learning designers, to design the e-learning and getting them who know a lot about how to design e-learning to talk to the people that know a lot about the subject matter. So the subject matter expert gets partnered with the e-learning designer or even just the uh, instructional designer. And the, the SMEs or the subject matter experts can have as many 600-page documents as you know, their little hearts content and give all the detail there are and give all the you know, 45-slide you know, slide deck 
to the designer. And then the designer does what they do best, which is design e-learning that works, that's functional, that's creative, that's engaging without you know needing a set of best practice and also knowing how to compress all videos, all images so that you don't export a, a SCORM file that can't be surfed over anything but you know top speed NBN. Um, or you know, in the case of facilitator learning, give it to a give it to a instructional designer who actually knows how to take this knowledge and convert it into learning that can be distributed or that can be rolled out. And I think, come, um, I don't know if this is you know old school, but I just I feel like this is the function of a learning team is to partner with the people in the business that know the knowledge that have the actual knowledge that needs to be transferred. And then we design it in, in a way that makes the learning transferable, teachable, learnable. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to agree. And I think maybe just probably through my experience in development, a very creative space and there was no boundaries with what you can create. So you create something really, really good. It hit the mark. The learning content was, was great. It was designed great. And then the next project would be that standard, but then a little bit better, a little bit better. And I think where we've got to at, at the moment is, uh, particularly with during the pandemic as well, we've, we've just seen the volume of learning come out. We've probably just seen a certain standard now where we haven't really seen much creativity or in from what I've seen anyway, much creativity or content that's really pushing the boundaries. Content that's good, it's still good learning content, I find. But yeah, there's not been a lot recently that I've seen where it's really kind of, push those boundaries and, and been something different there's still people in the industries sorry uh, you're gonna say something <laughs> no you, you go you go <laughs> uh, i just wanted to add really quickly I, I feel like i totally totally agree totally concur but there is hope because i do see people in the industry that are a select few a handful that are still really focused and really true to creating what i call creative learning experiences that's a really good sign to see especially in today's kind of environment and, and you know with COVID happening and everything and people just want to get things digitized and put on so people have things to do, right? Mm-hmm. There's still a select few, a handful of people that are just doing the good work, essentially. So, but yeah, sorry, Sal, you were going to say something. The two, the two parts I was thinking of is one, what do you do if you don't have a learning team and you don't have an instructional designer and you don't have a developer? And I've definitely worked at a company previously where every time we needed something changed in the LMS, we had to email some guy and it would take him a while to respond. So you, you just couldn't move at pace. That was what was hampering us. So I think in that sense, we're going back to the best practice thing. Sometimes you do have to have, this is what's reasonable for us right now. And it's not great, but this is what's reasonable. I also think the best practice is good for people who are learning. That's another one. The other reason I wanted to just return to this is I would like to think that there is an increasing ability for more and more people particularly in workplace learning where I work, to be involved in creating learning. Because I think there was definitely maybe the only people who delivered learning were facilitators. And now I think people understand that if you drone on in front of a PowerPoint deck, people are going to slip into a coma and just you know, ignore you or whatever. There's versions of that now coming out with you know video videos. or I, I think by giving them access to this, they can get feedback from their learners and go, okay, this is the new version of reading every word out on the slide deck. But by doing that over time, they'll go, okay, well, now I know how to do this without necessarily having to be a trained instructional designer. 
or developer. And then the last thing I was just going to say also to, on, on that is I'm curious as to how, say, Instagram stories has developed in that there's quite a bit of creativity there. And I see some stories from people who are definitely not professionals in in these sorts of skills. And maybe Instagram did a lot of testing to get their platform correct and the options and the you know, the guidelines and the best practices. And I think I've talked to you about this before. I'm very, very inspired by good apps in terms of what should, you know, learning look like because if people can jump on and do a great Instagram story of them doing whatever, it's their morning bowl of porridge and they've got a piece of music from someone, they've got a filter or some other animation, quick and easy, and it just uploads and works how can we replicate that through the mixture of the software, people building the software, the learning ecosystems that we have to work with, and sometimes they're limiting, and then the people as well. I'm, and oddly, I'm hopeful that if people can just get on Instagram and do things like that, then we should be able to find a way as a, as a collective community <laughs> to provide versions of that for, so that you can go, look, I'm not a learner. I'm an expert in, um, I don't know, I'm just trying to think, say flight attendant, you know, something which is rare these days. <laughs> but say you're that, it's like, okay, you don't have to be a learning designer. You, you know how to be a flight attendant. You're going to train some other flight attendants. And here is your version of Instagram stories to help make it great. That's what I think would be good to get to. But I'm not sure what that looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you mentioned the Instagram situation and kind of use that as an example of what Mm. rate can look like and thinking about leveraging what they did right, which is, you know, Mm. how we grow and learn, right? I remember us having this conversation again somewhere when we were maybe having a few drinks after work. Yeah. It's still a very interesting topic. I want to just add that I feel like there's a unique element or an advantage that Instagram has, which is that their learners are pre-engaged. They're pre-engaged with the content, right? You don't see content from content creators that you didn't follow in the first place. They're either your friends, they either appeal to your hobbies, or they're hot. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to (laughs) lie. And sometimes... It's all three at once. Yeah, it's all three at once. You know, you got a hot, you got a hot guy or gal, um, you know, talking about, you know, uh, I don't know, um, raising poodles, um, <laughs> which both things are things that I don't know, I like or you like, right? So there's that element. Whereas, you know, for corporate learning, it's not always the luxury we can afford, where our learners readily want to know what we have to say or what the piece of learning has to give to them. So that's one obstacle I think, mm. you know, may need to be considered. Another one is one that I know, we again, we've touched on in previous um, times of chatted he- mm. here on the podcast is the motivation of economy, the economics, mm. uh, the economics, uh, the economy, the economics of having money as an incentive, right? You look at the marketing industry. Marketing industry has got this thing down pat. Marketing is about getting a message to the people they want to get the message to, right? Absolutely. And the, the measuring and the – it's great. <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah. oh, you know, you kind of look at it and there's like, you know, God light shining on it, right? Because they figured it out. But what made them figure out all of this is money. There is a monetized incentive for them to get it absolutely right, right? If they can get this message – to the right people at the right time, right amount of times, then money flows in, 
whereas we are fundamentally a different industry. We're more concerned, at least at a very basic level, you know, we're more concerned about transferal of knowledge and learning, right? Yes, that in turn makes the company who is investing in our teams, mm-hmm. who then, you know, upskills our, our learners, that investment in turn comes back as increased profitability, all that kind of stuff, increased productivity, um, better efficiency, less, you know, workplace incidents, all that kind of stuff. But it's not the direct result. It's not the very first layer of results. It's, you know, maybe down two or three layers down that you get that return on investment. Whereas and- if you show a kid McDonald's logo 10 times a day for three years, they will come and buy McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I think it might be a topic for another chat. Yes. Oh, um, sure. But sure. that may be the case now. But what's stopping that from being the case for us in the future and saying, for every dollar that we, I give you to spend on a learner, I need to see $2 increase in revenue? Um, that's a different topic. Um, Maybe that could be our cliffhanger for the next episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It'll be a very interesting chat. <laughs> I can already tell. Guys, this was a great chat and um, could probably chat to you for forever on this kind of stuff, but um, <laughs> I will leave it there. And uh, no, thank you very much. This was a great one. Thanks, Dan. Thanks That's for right. having, having us back on again. Yeah, it's been great. always great to chat.